You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is our review of The Favourite. Dearest Queen, you are mad, giving me a palace. It is a monstrous extravagance, Mrs. Molly, we are at war. We won! Oh, it is not over. We must continue. Oh! Oh, I did not know that. The Queen is an extraordinary person. They were all staring, weren't they? I can tell even if I can't see, and I heard the word fat. Fat and ugly. No one but me would dare, and I did not. She's been stalked by tragedy. Everyone leaves me. Dies. I apologize for my appearance. I hoped I might be employed here by you as something. A monster for the children to play with, perhaps. It is important to make new friends in court, is it not? You're so beautiful. Stop it, you mock me. If I were a man, I would ravish you. (laughs) You have become close to Abigail. She is a viper. You're jealous. You must send Abigail away. I do not want to. Let's shoot something. Sometimes it is hard to remember whether you have loaded the pellet or not. I must take control of my circumstance. Throw! I'm on my side. Always. Favour is a breeze that shifts direction all the time. Then in an instant you're back sleeping with a bunch of scabrous whores. As it turns out, I am capable of much unpleasantness. Did you just look at me? Stand by and let you destroy me. <laughs> you are enjoying all of this, aren't you? <laughs> well, it is fun to be queen sometimes. If you do not go, I will start kicking you. And I will not stop. My dear friend, how good to see you've returned from hell. I'm sure you shall pass through it one day. All right, everyone, you were just listening to the trailer for The Favourite, and the story is as follows. In the early 18th century, England is at war with the French. Nevertheless, duck racing and pineapple eating are thriving. A frail Queen Anne occupies the throne, and her close friend Lady Sarah governs the country in her stead, while tending to Anne's ill health and temper. When a new servant, Abigail, arrives, her charm endears her to Sarah. Sarah takes Abigail under her wing, and Abigail sees a chance to return to her aristocratic roots. The film is starring Olivia Coleman, Emma Stone, Rachel Weisz, and Nicholas Holt. It is directed by Yorgos Lantimos and written by Deborah Davis and Tony McNamara. I think I'm saying that correctly. I hope I am. Joining me for this review, I have Nicole Ackman. Hi, everyone. Dan Bayer. Hola. And Josh Parham. Hello, hello. In this corner, we have Olivia Coleman. In this corner, Emma Stone. And in this corner, Rachel Weiss. <laughs> Let's get ready to rumble. It is the favorite, everyone. Oh, my Lord. Let me tell you something about this movie. I love movies that portray smart people trying to outmaneuver each other, especially, especially without the use of swords. I love Mm -hmm. backdoor scheming, plotting, backstabbing. I love it. It's part of the reason why I really much 
enjoyed House of Cards and Game of Thrones. It's also part of the reason why I enjoyed another movie, which we will review at another day, called Mary Queen of Scots. But today we're talking about The Favorite. And for me, I will use the pun early. This is my favorite film of 2018. I will get into my reasons why later, but let's actually start off with one of you first. Nicole, tell us what you thought of The Favorite. <laughs> okay. <Uh-oh. laughs> um, so I actually saw The Favorite back a couple of months ago at the North Carolina Film Fest, but then I saw it again last night because I wanted to confirm that everything that I thought about it was still what I felt. Um, And I think that it's a beautifully made film. I think that it's delightfully funny and witty. And the performances are some of the best of the year. Like, it is a beautiful vehicle for these three women. And also for Nicholas Holt, who is fantastic in it. I also, like, Joe Alwyn is my favorite, like, random side character of the year in many different movies. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Like this, Boy Erased, Mary Queen of Scots. Joe Alwyn's bringing up all these, like, small roles. That all said, I don't love this movie as much as everyone else does. For one thing, I will admit, like, it's just a bit on the vulgar side for my taste. And, like, that is the me thing. I do think that in some ways the trailer sets it up to be more of, like, a typical costume drama than it is. I also have some issues with the way that Queen Anne is portrayed, but I can get into that later. (laughs) Well, I want to also say, too, for the record, that while this film may not be written by Yorgos Lanthimos, like his other films were, The Lobster, Dogtooth, The Killing of a Sacred Deer, which has, in the last couple of years, firmly cemented his reputation in many ways as that kind of a dark, vulgar, eccentric, whatever you want to label him as, uh, unique filmmaker and alps don't forget alps everyone i did not forget alps i just didn't want to list everything (laughs) all i'm trying to say is that this is still a yorgos lanthimos film through and through to your point nicole and yes it's like the trailers are one thing and there are a lot of people who were saying oh this looks like his most commercial and mainstream accessible whatever you want to say film to date no it's still a yorgos lanthimos film (laughs) in many ways and so let's see how that worked for Josh Parham. Josh Parham, what did you think of the favorite? Um, well, I agree with you that this is a slightly more accessible version of a Lorgos, uh, Yorgos Lanthimos movie, but it is definitely a movie that uh, conforms to his particular style. But I still really enjoyed it. I think that it is one of my favorite movies of the year. This ensemble is incredible. It is probably my pick for the best ensemble of actors for the year. Every Mine one too. of these, oh, every one mm. of these performances is just incredible. I loved every member of this ensemble, and the the story that is around these women and you know fighting for favor for each other and navigating kind of their own social class and getting into gender and sexuality, I just found that to be so fascinating in this story that has this kind of traditional costume drama kind of uh, setting to it. But I found it to be a lot more interesting than those movies tend to be. So I really enjoyed the movie. I think it's an an incredible piece of filmmaking and definitely one of the best of the year. Dan Bayer. This is also one of my favorites of the year. It is currently um, neck and neck with Suspiria as my top two of the year. Um, I can't decide and don't make me, 
but <laughs> which one I prefer. But I was very much on this film's wavelength. I mean, it took me about two minutes for me to realize that it was going to be one of my favorite films of the year. And sure enough, it just kept that going throughout the whole thing. Um, I was quite enamored of <laughs> large parts of this movie, most specifically Emma Stone. Mm-hmm. Um, she has never been this good. Yes. In anything. And it <laughs> it is a movie that asks so much of her. And I, I'm still trying to figure out if the the role as written catered to her strengths or if she just bent it to meet her strengths. She's such perfect casting and she works so well in this Lend the Most world. And she's working with Olivia Coleman and Rachel Weisz who have both worked with Lend the Most before and get his style. And oh God, she's fantastic. I love the little things that Lenthamos does to throw you off kilter. Um, the fisheye lenses in the cinematography, the strange editing choices, um, the soundtrack. God, the score in this is, ah, it's one of my favorite scores of the year. And I love that you said soundtrack, by the way, because it is yeah. not an original score. Mm-hmm which I have had to correct a lot of people on. I was not sure if it was an original score, actually, because there were parts of it that sounded like it could have been, but then other parts that sounded like they were pre-existing. But yeah, okay, good to know. Um, but yeah, it, that, so then they used those pieces of music brilliantly. And I, my, my one issue with it and this is something that Nicole and I talked about after we saw the movie yesterday is that I think it drags in mm-hmm. the the last act I I was I said you know like this is running neck and neck with Suspiria for my f- favorite of the year and Suspiria is like 2 hours and 40 minutes and it feels that long I didn't much care because I enjoyed it so much but this one felt just as long and it's a lot shorter. And again, that wasn't necessarily a problem because I was enjoying it so much, but it felt long. So I actually want to comment on that because that is actually, I would say, my biggest pet peeve with this movie. It's 120 minutes long. And I'm of the belief that if it were 90 minutes long or even 100 minutes long, I think this film could have possibly have been like perfect and 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 in a way like it's like i said it's still my favorite movie of the year yeah. um it kind of already is perfect but i agree with you dan that when the movie starts off the way that it does and by starts off i mean like it starts off at like 100 miles an hour yeah this movie is fast it is quick-witted um the plot uh, the, the the plot just takes these twists and turns early on like mm-hmm. very quickly and it doesn't build as it goes along. It just kind of comes out of the gate running. And you're into it, and it's entertaining. But I have to admit that after a while, and this is the other thing, too, that kind of helped to add to the exhaustion a little bit, the the title displays in the movie. You know, we're getting to Act 1, yeah. Act 2, Act 3. By the time we get to, like, Act 5, I was like, okay, this is the last act. 
Act six. No. Wait, what? Okay, seven. <laughs> yeah. It's gonna end. It, it's gonna end at seven, right? No, it goes to eight. And then I was like, when is this movie gonna end? I had to finally look at my watch and be like, are they going to ten? Like, what's going on here? <laughs> and I was starting to get a little confused with just the overall pacing of it all. And yeah, yeah I have to admit, I, I started to question it by the end. Yeah, I think that's the key. The pacing in the last third completely slacks. And I think it's because in the third act, after a certain character gets pushed to the side a bit, um, I think that's when it started to feel long and yes. bloated. Yeah. I think yeah. Because it loses focus a bit. I felt that after that, what it did was make the same narrative point again and again and again. And it until yeah. the final shot, exactly. which is stunning. It's my favorite shot, I think, of the year. Oh my God, that dissolve. It just. It's uh, so. Uh, 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 just yeah. even thinking about it. Because <laughs> there's symbolism behind it, um, not just in what the dissolve uh, shows us, but also, too, in the power dynamics without any dialogue and this movie is filled with dialogue there is so much being said in that final shot with no words at all that it just leaves you on what i think was the most perfect note i i had a cinema high when i walked out of this movie <laughs> yeah. i was elated on cinema because not just with like a choice like that but as you as you all said before the acting the writing, the costumes, the cinematography, the makeup, the score, like even the sound. This is not a movie that's like known for sound, but they have these big ass corridors and hallways with long, tall ceilings. And I don't even know how they pull this stuff off, but like they actually paid attention to the sound and the sound kind of carries over. And there's a unique element to the movie because of that. It's subtle, but it's there. And as someone who just loves and appreciates cinema so much, when you have every single aspect in the filmmaker's toolbox being utilized, come on, man. That's 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 what it's all about. Yeah. Yeah, it is the, probably the best crafted movie of this year. I was reading There's something. There's so much attention to detail that just is mind-boggling yeah i was reading something about how they lit a lot of the scenes with candlelight yes which is insane and i feel like it does show and that you really feel like you're immersed in that world um but like that's such a nice detail to it now i have to ask this question too do we think that the story is entertainment for entertainment's sake or do we think that there is a larger message here did anybody else get anything from this story as a, at all, I don't know, any kind of a meta commentary on today or anything else at all? Or did you just simply watch it as a form of entertainment? Well, well I mean, I, I think that you can certainly take this movie in as just, you know, base entertainment and it works fine like that. But I think what is also very interesting about this movie is that it presents a story of these three characters and kind of dealing with class and gender. And I think that that is what gives it kind of an interesting tint to it, seeing how women at this time have to vie for power with each other in very different ways than men have to. And I think if you especially kind of look at the way that, um, you know, the two people are sort of vying for the queen's favor and then contrast it with somebody like Nicholas Holt, who is, con you know, always on the sidelines, but is trying to work his similar dealings, but doesn't have 
the same kind of influence and has to resort to different tactics. I find that to be very uh, a very interesting contrast as well. So I think all of those are themes that the movie's playing with that are very interesting to look at. I definitely agree with you on that. I'm just really curious because I did read some takes on the film where some people commented on how they didn't particularly like seeing the women themselves fight each other while the men kind of like looked on and looked for their opportunity to strike because and, and maybe because I just saw the movie but in Mary Queen of Scots it is it is very <laughs> much about um the the women going head to head against the men in their court instead and I'm wondering you know which one of those two types of stories is going to resonate more with audiences there you know what I'm saying okay yeah. Oh, oh, Nicole's got words. Nicole has thoughts, and I want her to have the last word on this, so I'm going to jump in just before she does. Go ahead, Dan. You go first. (laughs) I've thought about this a lot since yesterday and talking about this and the history with Nicole. And (laughs) I, I think that one of the things that I like about this is that in this film, the women are presented as very intelligent yeah and they don't always use it for use that intelligence for you know quote unquote the greater good but they're intelligent ones and the men are largely not not idiots but silly yeah, I would say Nicholas Holt is really the only one that shows any kind of level of intelligence, probably. Yeah. Well, and, and Sarah's husband. And Sarah's oh, husband. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, who is largely <laughs> not <laughs> <laughs> Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but even he, like, there's that whole scene when they're just, like, pelting the other guy with oranges, and it <sighs> is the height of frivolity in the whole movie. Such a bizarre moment. <laughs> it's so bizarre, and one of those like distinctly Lanthimosian <laughs> scenes that also, I just anyone loved. think that that guy looked kind of like James Corden? <laughs> I had that thought. Only after when I saw people pointing that out. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> but that's all I have to say about the situation, and I'm going to leave it to Nicole. <laughs> okay, so obviously I have some thoughts on this. I studied history, in particular women's history, in college, and I Queen Anne is actually a favorite subject of mine. I think she's fascinating. I've been actually to several places that they filmed this movie. And... I feel that while Sarah Churchill was portrayed very close to everything I've read of the real Sarah Churchill, I disagree with how they portrayed Anne in this movie, largely because I think in a lot of ways they set her up as seeming incompetent um, and unable to rule without ever addressing the fact that she was born so far down you know, the line of secession that she never received any sort of training um, in how to be a monarch. She only ends up queen through, like, a coup and then her sister dying childless and there basically being nobody else. And so she she comes into this life. She's already had these really difficult physical circumstances. Her husband, who she was incredibly close with, has passed away. And she is really at, you know, a low point because she was never meant to be in this spot. And I feel, for me, I would like the film a lot more if it had kind of addressed that. Because it could have been done so easily, you know, a comment from Sarah at some point 
to address the fact that like she's incompetent, not because she's not a good monarch, but because she was never trained to be a monarch in any way, shape, or form in the way that a man of the time who became king would have been. Um, and I, that's like my main issue with it. I've got a lot of issues with like weird stuff that they did that I don't understand. Um, like why they didn't include the fact that Mr. Harley, Nicholas Holt's character, was also Abigail's cousin. I think that's like a much more compelling story if you include that fact. But like my main thing, I guess, is that I feel like it's kind of unfair to portray Anne in this way without giving kind of her, you know, more of her backstory as to why she was the woman that she was just because we have so few female leaders to look to in the past. Which is, you know, I, I listen, I can't because I don't know the history like you do, mm-hmm. even though you just <laughs> said it very, very well. Thank you. I, 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 I can't understand that criticism personally. Uh, well, I understand it. I can't agree with it, though, because it's, uh, you know, it's just something that I don't get when I watch the movie because, like, you're right. The information is not presented. So unless if you know it, you can't take issue with it. Does that, like, does that make sense? Like, oh, from yeah. Just, I, my issue, too, is, like, as a as a feminist, like, I hate to pull that out, but, like, it's hard to see that kind of agency taken from her that I feel like you see throughout the film mm, whenever she's yeah. one of the few female monarchs that we have. And when this film is going to be a lot of people's only ever exposure to her, like, as you said, you're a well-educated guy, but you don't really know anything about Queen Anne. And that's true of most people. And so it's one thing, you know, if, if Queen Elizabeth I is portrayed unfairly in a film if they dumb her down let's say people are gonna know people have that background for the most part whereas i feel it's people are gonna come away thinking that that's all that there was to her and it's i feel like for me it feels kind of along the same lines of like the issues with bohemian rhapsody Mm. and kind of writing out freddie mercury's you know sexuality and you know what that's that's a very good comparison because that is that's something that's a little bit more well known because it's more recent Precisely. And so I guess that's kind of my main issue with the film, just especially in that it would have been very easy to include that um, to kind of counterbalance the humor that we find in Anne being really, you know, delightfully incompetent. Well, let me ask you this question, at least. What do you think of Olivia Coleman and her performance? Oh, I first of all, like coming from the theater world, everyone loves Olivia Coleman. Um <laughs> She is a delightful woman. I saw her give a speech live last year after she, when she was accepting an award. And she is just brilliant. Like, I don't think the woman could do anything wrong. <laughs> um, and so I do think it's a gorgeous portrayal. And I think that she manages to find so much humanity in the role. So, like, my issues with the portrayal of Queen Anne have absolutely nothing to do with her. It has to do more with the writing. Because I, I just think that she's stunning in the part. And I, I like that there are so many little moments. And I don't think this is a big spoiler. But where, you know, she seems to be in the moment having a good time. And all of a sudden you can see the emotion change, like, in her eyes. And it's just thrilling to watch that kind of performance. Uh, sticking with the performances here for a <laughs> moment, uh, let's uh, comment on any of the performances in this. Uh, does anyone have a favorite? Let's start off with you, Josh, of uh, of the performances in this film. Who would you say is your favorite? Uh, well, I do have to echo so many of the comments about Emma Stone here. I was 
I think she was the one that, not that I was underestimating her in the movie, but I was kind of going into the film expecting Olivia Coleman to be great, expecting Rachel Weisz to be great, but maybe not thinking that Emma Stone was going to rise exactly to that level. And maybe that expectation played a part in me just really being so impressed with her. I think that the layers that her character has to go through is so fascinating. And I mean, I just loved, I loved all the three women in this movie, but I was particularly taken with her. I think that she is really special in this film. I think it is her best performance. And I, I loved her dearly. (laughs) I think she's so great in this film. I feel the same way. Uh, Nicole. I think, Olivia Coleman's performance is my favorite, though it's by far my favorite Emma Stone performance. And I think that she is stunning. I also have to say that, like, I think the most enjoyable one to watch is Nicholas Holt. Yes. Yeah. Um, She's so he just good. Gets so many fun bits. And especially I love the exchanges between his character and Emma Stone. It's like, I think that they have really nice, witty chemistry back and forth between them. Yeah. Oh, they're so phenomenal the way they play off each other. And I would just like, you know, to kind of just mention something about Nicholas Holt and that he, to me, has always been like the poster child for the young, attractive guy who's very bland as a leading role Mm -hmm. actor, but you stick him with a character kind of supporting role. He just shines so well. And I think this is another example where he's not in the spotlight. He's off to the sidelines, but he adds so much to the ensemble and just, lives in that role just beautifully. And I just wish that more people would give him roles like this because mm-hmm. when he's in the spotlight, I don't really find him that interesting as a leading man. But when he's uh, just basically working as a character actor, he's so much fun and enjoyable and, er- and entertaining to watch. And these are the types of performances that I think he excels at. And he's great in this movie too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's uh, his best performance. I think I've seen him give. And a lot of people have been saying to me, what better than Mad Max Fury road? Yes. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I'm like, yes. And, and he's great in Mad Max too, but this <laughs> yeah. is his best performance. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't think it's Rachel Weiss's best performance personally, no. but, 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 but I'm not saying that as a knock, I think yeah. she is phenomenal in this yeah. and worthy of any awards recognition along with the other two who I think everyone else is kind of giving their awards recognition to more so. But I mean, I'm all for putting Emma Stone and Rachel Weisz together in the supporting category. I I, I I feel like you can't have one without the other. It just doesn't make sense to me otherwise. I have to also echo everything that's been said about Emma Stone. It's my favorite Emma Stone performance I think I've ever seen a give. I think she is the best in show here. And as far as Coleman goes, it's it's so... You know, this is where I want to use this opportunity, actually, to just talk about the lead supporting thing really quick. (laughs) Yeah. When I walked out of this movie, I was on the record of saying to everyone that if it were up to me, I would have personally have done all three of them in supporting. However, I know that that doesn't make sense from a strategic standpoint if you're trying to get Academy Award recognition, but I look at this as an ensemble film the same way I would like a large ensemble movie like Magnolia, for example, Mm. but it's a small ensemble film, but I I still treat it the same way. The screen time is very, very similar between all three of the ladies here. The only thing I would argue is that I do believe more of the story 
is told from Emma Stone's point of view. She has the most screen time, and she is the title of the movie, in my opinion. She is the favorite. So, if that's all true, I would argue that Stone is lead and the other two are supporting if I were to be strategic about it. Yeah, I would say, like, I think it's a three-lead movie. I think the three of them share leading duties equally. It is about the three of them. To the extent... Like if that you have to pick one, but but wait, wait, wait. But when you have an ensemble you, film though, like a large ensemble film, they don't put them all in lead. They all put them in supporting. True, and, and that's what I'm saying. Like if you're going for strategy, fine, put them on supporting. And if you have to say that one is more of a lead than the other two, then it's Emma Stone. I that said, I don't begrudge Olivia Coleman sticking up for herself and her career. And no, saying, not at all. I want to this is where I want to be campaigned because I believe I'm a leading actress and going forward I want to be seen as leading actress although she's going to be taking over the crown yeah, I mean exactly. this I is mean, a bi- this is a strategic move for her career and it's yeah. very smart on her part although I don't the the thing is like I know that initially the uh, the Oscars the division between lead and supporting meant that I don't think that that division is so much there anymore because so many leading actresses have been nominated and won in supporting. Yeah, that's true too. You know, I I I think that's a bit of an antiquated way of thinking. It also and this may be completely unfounded, but it also strikes me as something of a British way of thinking. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> um, for reasons that I can't quite express, but just seems like, I don't know. What about you, Josh? What, like, in terms of the, you know, lead supporting, you know, this has just been a question all award season. We have our answer, <laughs> but I, I would just like like it to be on the record. What would, like, what would you do and what do you believe? Yeah, I mean, this was something I thought about, like, immediately after I watched the movie. And I have to feel, like, in my heart, I sort of walk away feeling that you – the right thing to do would be to stick all three of them in the same category, whether that is to put them all in lead or put them all in supporting. I just feel like this movie is just equally divided amongst all three of them that it feels weird to separate them. And and I feel like in my heart, they should all just be in one. I don't know personally whether that should be in lead or supporting, but they should be together. If I'm forced to pick one to to separate, I do agree with the notion that Emma Stone feels the most like a lead character because she is the one that has kind of a journey. She's got an actual like destination to her uh, her story, and I think that sense of propulsion makes you feel like she's the anchor to the film a little bit more. Yeah, that's my thought. But it's mm-hmm. very like it's a very fine line. Like it's, it's an argument that you can make, but it's not one that I firmly believe in because there are times when I think the narrative switches from her to, um, Olivia Coleman and Rachel Weiss, and they are given as much time as her. So it like gun to my head, I would say Emma (laughs) Stone is the lead, but it's not one that I really believe in. I think they're all equal in kind of their, representation in this story it's really splitting hairs to say to pick one as the lead yeah and i can understand why they took so long in figuring Mm -hmm. this out because it is not an easy decision no not at all for me i feel like 
If you're looking straight at the performances, it definitely seems like they all belong in the same category. But once you look at the narrative, for me, it's very clear that Emma Stone is the lead because it can't be a movie about Queen Anne because why would it start and end with Abigail? You know, does that make sense? Like, oh no, it totally does. Mm-hmm. Like the relationship between Anne and Sarah has gone on for decades before the beginning of this movie, so it feels to me that the movie is completely driven by the character of Abigail Hill or Abigail Masham, whatever you want to call her. Um, and so that for me is the only thing that really bumps Emma Stone into the lead in like my heart. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. um, it's just because she's so clearly the narrative. It's I think Dan said something last night about like. Queen Anne is the central figure of the film, mm-hmm. but Abigail is the lead, um, mm. which makes sense. Like the, it does very much revolve around Olivia Coleman, but that doesn't necessarily mean that she's the one driving the story. Mm-hmm. Sure, no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and it's kind of cruel too, in a way, because I feel like if Olivia Coleman had gone supporting, mm-hmm. I would very she easily say that she would be the winner. Yeah, um, and if Emma Stone had not won that Oscar for La La Land, I would be saying that Emma Stone would be winning for this <laughs> personally. Yeah, I still think that she. I mean, like, look at how all of us immediately grabbed on her and said it was the best work of her career. I think she could still, <laughs> there's still time for her to shock if enough people feel the same way. Mm-hmm. I don't know. We'll see. Before we do get, though, to actual Oscar potential and discussing nominations, wins, uh, I want to pass it off to final thoughts. So for final thoughts, Del, uh, let's have a little bit of fun with this for a minute. I know we wow. talked about a few select things uh, before. Does anyone have like a favorite scene or moment that we did not discuss? I love the dance scene between Joe Alwyn and Rachel Weitz. Like the very <laughs> satirical. Oh, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Because it starts out like very, looking very much like a court dance and you're kind of like all right all right and then all of a sudden they've they just pull these moves out and it looks like close enough to court dance of that time that it's just i was in stitches laughing like it's- i do love that scene <laughs> <laughs> I, I was actually going to say though that i love the dance scene between Emma Stone and Olivia Coleman and they with the crutches and like how they're creating their own dance. And also we haven't talked about the bunny rabbits at all. Mm. I take it that my favorite performance. (laughs) Sorry, Emma. (laughs) The bunnies are everything. The bunnies are the lead. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, there you go the bunnies are the lead of the story the get the last shot of the movie the, the duck is the is it a duck or a goose it's the supporting ducks. yeah the ducks yeah <laughs> yeah oh for the record the ducks that's my favorite scene i <laughs> <laughs> i yeah. thought that was the most ridiculous yet best example that could be shown of these aristocrats just trying to entertain themselves and what fools they are and i just love the way it's filmed and it was just such a WTF moment for me that I just took so much gleeful joy in it. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty perfect. <laughs> oh god, there's so many great scenes in this movie, and you know it's it's been about a month since I've seen it, so I'm sure there's a ton of great scenes that I'm just not immediately remembering right now. But the one that comes to mind that I just remember just feeling like it was very well done. Uh, I don't want to give too much away, but it involves a kind of like after a marriage. And kind of a (laughs) (laughs) yeah. So you guys know, you guys know. I do remember this. And just the 
the look of determination on characters' faces and the plotting that was happening in that moment and the multitasking that was going on, <laughs> I just found so, like, that to me was very Lanthimos, but also, I don't know, it was also broad enough that I think a regular kind of normal quote-unquote audience could kind of get into that too. And I just found that to be so absurd but incredibly funny. Okay. <laughs> so now, great out of 10, Josh Parm. So I did really like this movie. Uh, I do agree, though, that there are some pacing issues at the very end. I think this movie does sort of hit a wall um, at the point where we have discussed where uh, certain characters kind of get pushed to the side. And I do think the momentum loses a little steam at that point. And that is something that does kind of take away from the film a bit, even though it does end on a really brilliant final shot. It does, it does chug along a little bit to get to that point. So for that, it isn't completely perfect for me, but at the same time, it is super enjoyable. Like I said, all these performances are great. And I would give it a nine out of ten. Dan Bear. Um, I'm in the same boat as Josh. It is a solid nine out of ten for me. Um, it, like I said, it's you know pretty much my favorite movie of the year. It's not flawless, but damn, did I love this! And it's pretty impeccably crafted. Nicole. <laughs> um, I'm gonna go with a seven out of ten. I just felt all the air in the room just get sucked out. <laughs> Part of it, honestly, I counted there are at least four vomiting scenes, and there's nothing I hate more in a movie than a vomiting scene. So it, like, that's part of what kills it for me. <laughs> so, like, that on top of the pacing, on top of all of my, like, feminist historian issues with it, takes it down. That said, I think it's a really beautifully, like, well-crafted film. And, like, a seven is still a good rating in my book, by all means. Oh, I think it is, too. But it's the kind of movie that, like, I would not rush to ever see again. But you did. Because <laughs> I, well, because I wanted to make sure that mm -hmm. I wasn't just... Yeah. Because I saw it back-to-back -back with another film um, the first time, and I wanted to make sure that it wasn't, like, colored by my reactions to that film. Sure. No, I totally understand that. Uh, I was originally at a 9 out of 10. And... Josh Parm, I'm glad that you're here. Uh, Josh Parm has helped me this past year to <laughs> recognize that it's okay to give more 10 out of 10s, where <laughs> traditionally um, I tend to go a whole year and I usually only give one, maybe two. And I started to feel like I was going to make it through this whole year and not give any. And I think that's when I kind of like after listening to Josh on many other reviews explain to me why even though a film can have flaws, it can still be a 10 out of 10 movie. Um, I'm finally conceding to that. And this <laughs> is a 10 out of 10 movie from me. Wow. Because even though I do have uh, I do have those pacing issues uh, as well as everyone else does, I'm acknowledging that they exist, but they don't actually personally bother me. So, because the film, I think, ends so strong that it made mm -hmm. up for that for me. Um, yeah, uh, I, I mean, everything else is flawless to me. The direction by Yorgos Lanthimos, the cinematography, as we said before, uh, it's the costumes by Sandy Powell. My God, they're oh, so God. Oh, God. They're so intricately detailed, but not 
overly saturated that they pop, but at the same time they do, but like in a more higher contrast, like tone, like with tones instead of color, you know? I, mm-hmm. I, I, I for- completely forgot to mention like one of my favorite things about this movie is that like there's so many movies about royals or upper class people where in each scene they're in a completely different outfit. But in this, it was very clear that there was like, their wardrobe was limited as it would have been as it is for any real person. Mm-hmm. You know, we see them in the same outfits over and over again. Like this is Sarah's shooting outfit. And this is the outfit that Queen Anne wears when she stands before parliament. And it, that I, I feel like that's very like true to life. Oh, I <laughs> love I always, that. I always appreciate <laughs> it when movies do that. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, uh, so with that said, uh, yeah, Oscar potential time. Oof. I mean, there's a lot, right? Prospect-wise, it's a long list. You know, it's a picture. threat across the board, basically. Yeah, <laughs> it really is. I mean, okay, so let's look at where it won't land. Best documentary. <laughs> <laughs> to your standards, Nicole, I think that is true. <laughs> uh, it won't land in the sound categories, even though I do think the sound uh, does have a considerable amount of effort. It's not a what you would call standard effort. Um, but no. I don't think it will show up in sounds. It would have to like win best picture to show up in sound, I think. Which for the record, it's not going to win best picture. No, no. I'm even considering the fact that it might not win screenplay, which I've had it predicted to win for months now. I still have it predicted to win there, but you never know. Right. We'll, we'll yeah. See. So it's definitely between this and uh, Paul Schrader's first reformed, I think. Uh, or vice. Oh, okay. Vice. Oh, God. <laughs> mm. I mean, listen, Adam McKay did it once before. He could do it again, you know? Yeah. They did it for Alexander Payne, oh, you know, with Sideways no. and Descendants. I mean, it's not unheard of to reward a writer twice. So, uh, but let's take a look here and let's see what else we got. We also have production design, makeup and hairstyling, costume design, uh, editing, and cinematography. Those are the below the lines. Um, now, editing, I'm a little, I could see it missing editing. Uh, honestly, Matt, I could see it missing cinematography, too, because I know we, for the most part, people seem to really like it, but I can imagine that cinematography being very polarizing. Yeah, it's it's very off-putting. But here's the thing, though, about that. I look at Tom Hooper's cinematography (laughs) in The King's Speech. I look at Wes Anderson's cinematography in The Grand Budapest Hotel. Now, tell me what's off-putting and what's not. Well, but... I mean, Tom Hooper cinematography and Les Mis, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, you never know. Like, sometimes if they really like it, they'll go for it. And then sometimes there's these bizarre snubs. Like, I will never forget that Sean Bobbitt didn't get nominated for 12 Years a Slave. And that oh. is really weird to me. Yeah. And yeah. You know, sometimes that branch will make selections that if it's close between a couple people, maybe they just prefer one over the other. And this movie has, you know, a very distinct style to it. And I can imagine that for some people, they're just not going to go for, you know, the fisheye lenses and they're just going to write it off. So I, I think it is a strong contender, but I would not say that it is safe for cinematography. See, now, like I look at the text and I say to myself, OK, it's not safe for makeup. It's not safe for editing. Mm-hmm. It may not even be safe for production design because there actually wasn't really any set design. They shot this in actual interiors pretty much yeah so 
there's been like this whole conversation about like what is the award best location scouting there was set dressing obviously yeah, there's a, but yeah. i do feel like i mean there are some of the sets that like i was like oh i've been there and that's what it looks like like <laughs> so i do see that that is an argument especially because i feel like it's a strong year for production design yeah now uh here comes an ultimate question do you have all three of the ladies predicted to get in right now? No. No. Oh my gosh, who do you have missing? Rachel. Same. Oh. As as much as that pains me, and you have no idea how much it pains me, but here is my reasoning. Supporting actress, while not as packed as leading actress, still has a good number of contenders in it. And I think when you come away from this movie, the people you come away talking about are Olivia Coleman and Emma Stone. And that's because this is a role that is so perfectly suited to Rachel Weisz's particular talents that she's just like, she's as good as she's ever been. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's nothing that is particularly surprising <coughs> about the performance. It's just her doing what she does as good or better than she's ever done it. Um, and I don't, you don't come away think like thinking about her. And I don't know if enough people are going to put her at number one on their ballots to get her in or even on the ballot at all. I think they may just check off Emma stone and then four other people that they like. I pray to God that I'm wrong. Because Lord knows she deserves another Oscar nomination, <laughs> and she's absolutely fantastic in this. But I, right now, I have her missing. I have them both predicted until the guilds say otherwise. I want to see how many of the guilds go for both of them. You know, if yeah. we start seeing both, like, and here's here's going to be the test, right? The test is going to be if they both show up at Critics' Choice, if they both show up at SAG, if they both mm-hmm. show up at BAFTA, mm-hmm. like. I think it's. I think you have to say it's going to happen at that point. But if there is a crack somewhere, then yeah, Dan, I, I have to admit she's the first one to go. I think. Yeah. Josh, I'm really curious because you're the one uh, that was mentioning before the cinematography couldn't miss. A lot of people sometimes equate cinematography to uh, director, and you know, just in terms of the shooting style and so on and so forth, and you know, director utilizing a camera. Do we think that Yorgos Lanthimos uh, could miss out on Best Director? Yes. And in fact, I think right now I do have him missing. I have him at number six, but I also have Damon Chazelle at five. So I don't know. It, it, I think that he is somebody that people there – there is a faction of the Academy that does respond to his work. But we've only really seen that happen outside of foreign language film in screenplay. And I just don't know if the director's branch is going to go for something with that unique of a style. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they're in the mood for it. But then other times they're not. And I just I don't know if there's going to be enough to push him across the finish line. And I think it all depends just on how much the Academy at large likes this movie. That's the big question mark. Yeah, this is another scenario again where. I personally can't see how he misses because I do think the style is so unique and I do see the trend in that they, for Dogtooth, the nomination, Lobster, the screenplay nomination, I could see it now culminating with, okay, here's the movie now where we're going to really, really embrace 
you and your movie. Um, now, who's to, you know, who knows what happens after that beyond, but I do feel like he has momentum, especially because he keeps releasing a movie every single year uh, mm-hmm. since 2015, mm-hmm. you know? Um, uh, well, he skipped 2016. Well, actually, Lobster was 2016, really. Whatever. He's had a movie for the last couple of years in a row. Um, and I just feel that there is momentum on his side. And I do think that they are going to respond to the work here because, like we said before, um, it's not just the camera work. It's the it's the performances. It's the yeah. pacing. It's the, it's the story. It's the makeup. It's, it's literally everything. And it's the tone of the thing. Yeah, I think it's so singular that I, I and it's also let's not discount the fact that it's also coming out at the right time yeah. in terms of it, it had its festival release. It went away for like about a month or so and now it's back again and now it's going to expand and it's all happening right now when the critics awards are about to start and it's mm-hmm. all kind of just perfectly paced out. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, in I, all fairness, I said I have him at number six, so. I have him like just on the cusp. I could move him in in a couple weeks. You know, I, I do very much think that he is in the conversation, but I just also think that his style has been such a question mark lately for so many people that we've never seen a movie of his play this broadly before. And I just, I, I'm just unsure about how effective it's going to land for him. I, I got a question though about that because like this is probably going to be if not the most nominated film at the Oscars than one of them. One of them. It's yeah. going to have one of the two or three highest nomination tallies. And when was the last time a picture that had one of the highest nomination tally tallies that got nominated for best picture didn't also get a best director nomination? I feel like I should notice off the top of my head and I don't. <laughs> because like the one that I, I keep on thinking of something like Dream Girls that was the nomination leader, but it didn't get a best picture nomination. Yeah. Yeah, I mean like, like Inception it... had eight nominations with no director. That's the Ah, uh, there you go. Thing I can okay. Yeah. Thing I think of. Weird. So weird. Christopher <laughs> Nolan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but now the question then becomes, you know, if we're going to just talk about picture then. So I think we're all in agreement. It's going to land in screenplay. Um, are we all pretty confident that this is going to also get a Best Picture nomination at least? Yes. yes. Yeah. I mean, you have a couple of people here that have it near the top of their favorite films of the year or at the top. So, yeah, I, I would say this is a, a number one movie for some people yeah, out there. Th- there's going to be at least 300 people that can put this in number one. I, I okay. feel confident <laughs> that it'll get a Best Picture nomination. Yeah. Uh, and even though it is a little off kilter, off putting at times uh, in terms of that Yorgos Lanthimos uh, style or Lanthimosian, if we're going to start comparing him to Lynchian or Kubrickan or whatever. <laughs> but this is what I keep saying. Like, if Mad Max Fury Road can pull off a Best Picture nomination, then the favorite can too. <laughs> no, I, I, I think you're right here. Because in many, many ways, I, I I have said before that I think Yorgos Lanthimos is like the new David Lynch in terms of like oh, yeah. his more horrific films like The Killing of a Sacred Deer. And now with this, I'm seeing Stanley Kubrick and Barry Lyndon with the favorite in many ways. And I'm just mm-hmm. like, is there nothing this guy can't do? I think that this is going to be his year, not for a win, but just in terms of getting that level of recognition for his film. I now demand a Yorgos Lanthimos musical. <gasps> oh, my God. 
<laughs> because I think he can do it. I think he can too. I really Give do. Give him a shot at Sweeney Todd. Oh my god. <laughs> Yorgo's Lanthimos version of Sweeney Todd. Ooh. Holy shit. Let's leave on that note. Oh. I need it in my life. Yes. <laughs> that is the perfect note to go out on. Oh man. Wow. Josh Parham, where can they find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at J.R. Parham. Dan Bayer. You can find me on Twitter at Dancing Dan on Film. And Nicole Ackman. You can find me on Twitter at Nicole Ackman 16. And you can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to our review of The Favorite here on the Next Best Picture podcast. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Player FM, Acast, CastBox, and now newly on Spotify. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Write something. Let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate any feedback that you can uh, leave for us. And if you're feeling generous, head on over to our Patreon page, where for $1 minimum a month, you can get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening. As always, we shall see you all next time. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today, such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts. And new episodes come out every Monday.